It's time for a conversation about a book that matters. This is The Book Nook. The Legend of Sleepy Hollow by Washington Irving Found among the papers of the late Dietrich Knickerbocker A pleasing land of drowsy head it was Of dreams that waved before the half-shut eye And of gay castles in the clouds that pass Forever flushing round a summer sky Castle of Indolence In the bosom of one of those spacious coves Which indent the eastern shore of the Hudson At that broad expansion of the river Denominated by the ancient Dutch navigators The Tepan Zee and where they always prudently shortened sail and implored the protection of St. Nicholas when they crossed. There lies a small market town or rural port, which by some is called Greensburg, but which is more generally and properly known by the name of Terrytown. This name was given, we are told, in former days by the good housewives of the adjacent country from the inveterate propensity of their husbands to linger about the the village tavern on market days. Be that as it may, I do not vouch for the fact, but merely advert to it, for the sake of being precise and authentic. Not far from this village, perhaps about two miles, there is a little valley, or rather a lap of land, among high hills, which is one of the quietest places in the whole world. A small brook glides through it, with just murmur enough to lull one to repose, and the occasional whistle of a quail, or tapping of a woodpecker is almost the only sound that ever breaks in upon the uniform tranquility. And so begins the short story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow, by Washington Irving. But guys, this book, I'm sure you did your own little background work on this, but this this short story actually showed up in a book called The Sketchbook of Jeffrey Crayon, Gentleman, published in 1819 by Washington Irving himself. The illustrations in the book that we read were actually produced with uh, a second publication of this book in 1863. Washington Irving was born just before, or let me look here, just after the Revolution at 1783. And so, in, in fact, he was named after General Washington, and when he was a young boy, he got to meet President Washington, and uh, George Washington gave him a formal blessing, which lingered and had a, a, a long-lasting impact in his life, actually. He, he often thought of that. Um, so let me ask you guys a couple of questions. What were your initial reactions to the story? Well, first of all, why, why don't one of you do your best to give us a summary, give us a summary version of this story for those who may ha- you know, have been sleeping under a rock for the last couple hundred years. Is this a spoiler-free description of a hundred-year-old short story? Or oh, <laughs> just, a, you know, a snapshot. Give me a snapshot of the story. What's what's it about? Okay, so the story is about a teacher from the, the big city, so to speak, who comes to this smaller, sleepier, quieter town to educate the children, and he's sort of Uh, this oddity for all the people around, and he has to sort of try to fit himself to this country lifestyle at some great difficulty for him. And as he does so, he's acquainted with the legends of Sleepy Hollow, namely uh, that they have a magical ghost called the Headless Horseman who rides about the town scaring folks in the dark. And he himself, being very uh, acquainted with ghost stories and very very, uh, interested in them, 
kind of gets all wrapped up in this in this story. Well, as he's getting to know the people of the town, he becomes very smitten with kind of the most eligible bachelorette who also just happens to be the most wealthy heiress of the town. And his affection for her is sort of commingled with his desire for her, uh, her father's riches. And uh, a contest begins between him and the most eligible bachelor of that little town um, named Brom Bones. Um, and their contest sort of flourishes over the course of the story till eventually uh, he has an encounter with the Headless Horseman at night after one of his parties. And, uh, well, that's where the story reaches its conclusion. It gets interesting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> there, there's some sub-themes to the story, too, though, I think. And yeah, well, we'll, those... we'll we'll talk about the themes in a minute. Okay. I don't want to jump. I don't okay. want to jump too far ahead because okay. we got to stretch this out to at least an He's hour. He's like Kyle <laughs> didn't understand that story <laughs> the, 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 at all. The surfacey part can be had by watching the old Disney. Yes, cartoon yeah, that's right. And and so it. we'll we'll get. I I do want to talk about some of the themes because it's interesting. It's I think this is one of those short stories that does have uh, a, a meaning and a moral, but it's going to be hard for us to ferret out. And I think that's by Washington Irving's design. Um, so, all that to say, what were your initial reactions to the story? As you were reading it, what were your reactions to Washington Irving's writing style? Um, how, did it, how did the story itself hit you? I mean, this was written way back when. Some people think this was, um, the story is set in around 1790, but it was written, obviously published in 1819, so... That's a long time ago. The language that they're using is distant from us. What were your reactions to the story? I think um, the way he describes the town and the way the people that live there were given over to the stories that had been told through the years. I sat there and, and tried to take in just uh, or visualize what he was writing. And uh, I think as a young boy, I would have loved to live in a town like that because yeah. your imagination can run wild. Mm -hmm. And... And in, in my own growing up, I love stuff like that. I, I loved to just say, what if, you know? And so if you had friends that were of like mind, I mean, it was just a, a fun time to just explore and curiosity got the best of, you, you know, to say, what if this is true, you know? So, uh, so here's just a, a tiny little paragraph that I think will capture some of what you're talking about, because this is a desirable place to be. It's painted as this quaint, beautiful quiet kind of a place. He says, he writes this, he says, I, I recollect that when a stripling, my first exploit in squirrel shooting was in a grove of tall walnut trees that shades one side of the valley. I had wandered into it at noontime when all nature is peculiarly quiet and was startled by the roar of my own gun as it broke the Sabbath stillness around and was prolonged and reverberated by the angry echoes. If ever I should wish for a retreat, whether I might steal from the world and its distractions and dream quietly away the remnant of a troubled life, I know of none more promising than this little valley. It's a great, it's just a great little picture of the kind of place that this might have been. And um, so, yeah, I, I totally agree. Sleepy Hollow and Terrytown and the hillside, the countryside. This is a place you want to be. Yeah. Right. And just the how well acquainted Washington Irving is with the wildlife and the trees and the food and how colorfully he describes uh, the Dutch farmers who live there and uh, the the way he just has a rapier's wit to describe people. Like Washington Irving is a student of the of the human condition. I and, think any good writers are. Yeah, mm -hmm. and so his ability to describe 
a person that everyone knows, everyone who read the story finds characters. They go, I know exactly who you're talking about, but filled with all these little peculiarities that make them unique. Yeah. So listen to listen to just a brief description that he gives of Ichabod Crane. All right, Kyle, to prove your point. It says, to see Ichabod Crane striding along the profile of a hill on a windy day with his clothes bagging and fluttering about him, one might have mistaken him for the genius of famine descending upon the earth <laughs> or some scarecrow eloped from a cornfield. Um, so this is actually really interesting because the way he describes him as possibly the genius of famine who sees all of the plenty as yeah. belonging to him, yeah. as potentially being his, is an important piece of the profile of Ichabod Crane's character. Well, we need to come back to that in a little bit. But you're absolutely right, Kyle. Yeah. I, I love his descriptions. I, I I would like to say though that there's something about reading these older authors and their attention to detail. Um, they they found delight in in slowing down and understanding the world the way that it is. And I th- I think sometimes we even read what they wrote in a hurry. Mm-hmm. We're, we're conditioned to be in such a hurry that when we get to those kind of descriptions, we just want to skip through it. Like, what is he going on and on about the kind of food that they had? Why is he going on and on about the clothes that he, this person wore? But I think that says more about us than it does about them and our hurried, fast-paced lifestyle. Yeah, and they find, he finds so much significance in detail. When we get to talking about the themes in a little bit, you'll see that every description in the story— and this is true of just short story in general. You have no space to, to waste. Every word must be precisely the words you need. And some of his descriptions of uh, characters or places or even, like you said, the way that Ichabod views certain things in the story tells you about the meaning of what's going on. Yeah. And it's really, really good writing. Yeah. I think there's also – one of the things that struck me was his – really intimate familiarity with the natural world. Mm-hmm. And I think Kyle kind of alluded to this a minute ago. Yeah. Um, you know, even the little section you read there just, Ben, uh, you know, about him hunting among the walnut trees that kind of shaded one side of the mm-hmm. the valley. You, you see all throughout this story that the point of reference for most of the act, action in the story is described in terms of the natural setting. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> you know, the trees hung over and shaded this section of the road, and this stream ran through there, and that swamp was down there, and these trees grew in this area, and there's this whole descriptive thing about a tulip tree that scared him in the middle of the night. So this this whole real a connection to the natural world, I, I think that's really interesting and something very distinct from our current environment. I, yeah. I, I you know, I read to my seven-year-old every night for for quite a while at bedtime and one of the things we've done is we've read children's poetry just because we've read everything and that's kind of in the along the way you know and so we've read all this children's poetry and a lot of the poetry is older poetry and one of the things that strikes you as someone reading old children's poetry in 2022 is how much it has to do with the natural world what the point of references in the natural world. And I think if you even read the lyrics of old hymns that were sung in churches across America for most of the 20th century up until maybe the 1970s, you'll see this connectedness to the natural world in the way people express musical lyrics. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's a big change 
that's yeah. occurred over the last 50 years. Yeah, I totally, totally yeah. agree. I grew up in that that kind of atmosphere. I mean, I was... Um, in Saudi Arabia? No, this is one in Louisiana, <laughs> and we woods were behind our, our property, and... Um, I remember a neighbor friend of mine, we would, do y'all know what uh, cattails are? They were yeah. on the stock. Mm-hmm. So yeah. we would pick those during the day, let them soak in gas all throughout the day. And at night we would run through the woods with those lit for our torches. And um, just the stories we would tell ourselves yeah. and, and couldn't wait for the next night to roll around. Yeah. I mean, it was just a, awesome. it was a, it was a great childhood. There's um, a great scene in the old Disney cartoon yeah. of cattails drumming on a, a hollow log that scares yeah. Ichabod. That's kind of funny you bring that <laughs> I, up. I saw That's a weird. meme that yeah. had pictures of cattails and it said for all you Californians moving to Texas corn dogs grow wild along the edge of ponds. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Just, yeah, go ahead. Free try for the one. eating. <laughs> They're a little fuzzy, but whatever. Yeah. Well, <laughs> and a connection too with this uh, to your point about not only was the description and the value of the natural world uh, present, but the value of locality, that that people who belonged to that land had an advantage. Or uh, they there was a value, with even within the story, and it's sort of connected to some of the themes, I think, is this idea that there is a richness to local culture, to local custom, to local mm-hmm. people that— uh, you'll frequently see characters in the story who are uh, encountering nature, and because they're from that place, they find something more meaningful or more rich or more beautiful about what's going on, which I think is a really cool emphasis in the story. Um, so let me ask you guys this. What is the story about? Mm-hmm. Like, not... Well, let me, let, let's, let's yeah. back up a little bit. What kind of story is this? Is it a ghost story? Is it a horror story? Is it a drama? Is it a comedy? Is it a parable? What kind of story would you say that this is? I would say I would I would call it a ghost story. Um, I wouldn't say that's ex- an exclusive category, but I would call it a ghost story at its heart because I wouldn't call it a horror story because no. horror implies that the scare is the important part. And when you read this Legend of Sleepy Hollow, the scare is not the important part. Right. The mystery beforehand is the, is the important part. Right. The, the drama of wondering, is there a ghost? Is it real? And what does that mean for the characters in the story? Yeah. I think, so I'd call it a ghost story. Yeah. From what I gathered, um, Brom Bones was sort of a prankster and liked to mess around with people and... Kind of like his character, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. Brom, so Brom Bones, this kind of puts some of the other details into the story that we Kyle gave us a run through at the beginning. But yeah. Brom Bones is the um, counterpart, the adversary to Ichabod Crane. Yes. They're both vying for <laughs> Katrina's heart, and at the end of the story, there's a lot of doubt, uh, sort of planted in the reader's mind about whether or not it was the headless horseman. This uh, this decapitated Hessian revolutionary who sleeps in the graveyard of the church and wakes up every night running up and down the highway, um, whether it was him who scared Ichabod Crane away or whether it was Brom Bones who dressed up like the Headless Horseman, appropriated the Headless Horseman to scare uh, Ichabod Crane away and win Katrina's heart, ultimately. So that being said, I would probably call this a hilarious ghost story. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hilarious well, it's a comedy ghost story. I, you know, I think for anybody who's um, experienced... Maybe I can just speak for myself, but I, I suspect it's true. For anyone who's experienced this story is kind of limited to 
the Disney cartoon, um, the the nemesis of Ichabod Crane, uh, Brahm, is presented somewhat sympathetically in the story, and yeah. he has his own set of virtues. Yeah. And he's not just the neighborhood jerk. He's right. he's actually well liked. He's got a you know kind of a big sense of humor. He's got a lot of manly virtues that um, that Ichabod lacks. Yeah. Uh, and and that and kind of the writer goes out of his way to kind of highlight that in yeah. the story. Well, and I would say to your point because I agree. I was surprised at how much Brom Bones because my previous uh, connection to the story was uh, not through the Disney cartoon but through Wishbone, um, which maybe even more steps removed from the original <laughs> um, than before. But uh, what I found fascinating is how much you do kind of go, wow. There's some Brom Bones has got some things going on, and. I would say the story is not simply a ghost story about the Headless Horseman. I actually think the ghost story may be actually about Ichabod Crane. I think Ichabod Crane may be the ghost that haunts Sleepy Hollow in this story. Well, let's 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 go there here in just a minute. I think there's going to be. I think you're on to something. I don't know if I would say he's the ghost, but you're on. I th- I think you're on the right track to ca- to question. Ichabod Crane, and so we're gonna we need to do that later. In yeah. fact, William Faulkner wrote a, a story um, about a hundred years after this and made made use of of uh, Washington Irving's Ichabod Crane. And in the story, there's a school teacher who shows up, and he's gaunt and gangly, and but not in a comedic way, in uh, a kind of a spooky way. And he ends up trying to take advantage of a young woman, mm. and the woman yells at him, "Get away from me, you headless horseman, Ichabod Crane." And so Faulkner, Faulkner saw something else, and then that sort of becomes a, a theme in Faulkner's story about this one particular character and who, um, and what happens to that girl. All that to say, um, here's a question I'd like us to to think about for a second: What are some of the themes in the story, Pops? You 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 tried to go there a long time ago, and I cut you off. Yeah, we um, got to let him get first crack at rudely. it. Rudely, so <laughs> what are some of the themes that we see in the story? What is it about in that sense? Um, well, I think this gets to sort of the way Ichabod Crane is described at one level. First of all, the first and most overriding theme is that there is a sort of a, a live awakeness to the possibility of things beyond the material world that are impacting the material world. So this whole description of kind of the culture and community is being sort of alive with tales of ghostly you know, preternatural encounters and, and, uh, you know, this whole legend of the headless horseman kind of pervaded the culture and the sensibilities, if you will, of the people. So that was kind of presented first thing, but then Ichabod is not the most sympathetic character. In fact, he's sort of presented as someone who's completely self-interested. He's an interloper in this. Well, there's several things about him that are negative. One is that he's not a producer He's a consumer. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't. He's not presented with his with whatever he's doing with his teaching as someone who is actually producing. He, he's viewed as someone who's living off the produce of others. And, and we see this in in particular when he goes and visits Katrina at her home. In fact, this is what it says: when he really fell in love with Katrina was when he saw her father's estate. Yeah. yeah. And, and he he walks around the farm. And he sees all of this pro, all of these animals and gardens and everything. And when he sees, when he sees a pig as bacon, when right. he sees a turkey on this, he sees a roast turkey. Right. Which you know, it's even more so striking. He's a consumer. It's even more point. striking in that moment because he's there to court 
Katrina. And it's like, she was the most beautiful woman in the land, but then his descriptions of what attracts him is the food he could yeah, eat. Yeah, he, he, he wants to could consume, and even with her, she's a means to an end. She's not the end in itself. Yeah, and yeah. so she's something else to be consumed. So that's so there's this materialistic, acquisitive, coveting, greedy theme that sort of pervades his life, and it's all coupled with the notion that he's not producing anything himself, and so he's trying to get his hooks into what other people are producing. Um, so, so that's a really consistent theme. So there's a couple there's a couple options people throw out about what the story's about. That's obviously one of them. Some people say it's a story about greed. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of a surface level reading, mm-hmm. and it has something to do with greed. Ichabod certainly seems like a greedy cat, um, a lovable. At least laughable, humorous, humorous fool in some senses. Um, But some people have said it's it's Washington Irving's musings on what what it takes to win a woman's heart, a woman's heart. So like Ichabod (laughs) Crane presents with intelligence, but not courage, and Brom Bones looks like he presents with courage, but not so much intelligence until the thought is planted that maybe. He was more clever than Ichabod Crane in the end, and mm, so it mm. took both intellect and courage on the part of Brom Bones to win Katrina. Yeah. There, there, there's would, one. She, she's also not presented as sympathetic, by the way, because she's presented yeah. kind of as a. She's toying with these she's, guys. She's dallying with multiple guys and not yeah. really serious, and just sort of <coughs> um, immature. She's coquettish. Yeah, he, she's way described he as a coquette. Yeah. Right, so yeah, she's... showing the most lovely foot and the smallest bit of an ankle. It says, "Yeah, yeah." I, kind of a I tease. Would, I would yeah. say too, one of the big <clears throat> themes in this is sort of a which has the advantage, sort of a the, the progress and the intellect of uh, kind of the the larger society. You know, uh, Sleepy Hollow's location is not an accident for Washington Irving. It's secluded, and in that sense, it is spared from what he describes as the the movement or the progress of the world around it. And so there's sort of this tug and sort of Ichabod and, and Brombone sort of uh, end up inhabiting or personifying these two forces in, in Sleepy Hollow is that Ichabod wants to come in and modernize and he wants the kids to be educated in books and learning and he's coming in with new ideas. Well, Brombones is very uh, emblematic of uh, – the traditions and sort of the quaintness of the town and uh, Ichabod's uh, absolute disdain for the ruralness and the ruggedness of the Dutch farmers in the story is not shared by the narrator. Um, And so I think that's sort of a tension they're trying to build in that story as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Um, So a couple other, a couple other ideas about what the story is about the power and influence of super of superstition and belief uh, there's there's something along those lines, but I I really think, and maybe we could sum up all good ghost stories this way, is it's it's about the effect and influence of the past upon the present. Ooh. Okay, so this is a story I believe that's really about this ghost, this headless horseman, who is more a member of this community than Ichabod Crane. Hmm. Everyone knows him. He died there. He gave his life there. He lives at the church. And he runs up and down the hills that he owns, he rides just like everybody else in this quaint little community. And in comes Ichabod Crane, who, by the way, we we don't we're not told to like too much. I I actually believe, and we can talk about this later, I actually believe the headless horseman 
is the hero. Hmm. Not not the villain. The ghost is the past actually rises up to save Katrina and mm-hmm. the community mm-hmm. from Ichabod Crane, who had only what he could take from them in mind. Hmm. Um, and so it's interesting that this this long dead, long past member of the community is the one who rises up. Maybe, maybe in the form of Brom Bones, but we don't know. It right. could yeah, be we're that, left wondering. It could yeah. be that Brom Bones is simply embodying the history. Yeah. Of their community. The sentiments of right. that are informed by their... Yeah. You know, he may be a headless horseman, but he's our headless horseman. But he's our headless <laughs> yeah. horseman. Well, yeah. and, and you see this throughout the story is uh, really, even in Washington Irving's telling, this place feels historical because he's always talking about what happened there in the war and how the old men would gather and tell stories about what they did during that time. And so we're looking at this... St- sleepy town going you know hundreds of years after going wow this is old but even in the telling of the story he's emphasizing this place is older than even the places that are around it mm. which i think is to your point really important yeah. yeah yeah any other thoughts on on the themes in this book before we jump on ahead so there are some ironies i think that we see take place in the book um any any that leapt out at you guys I saw a couple ironies. Yeah, go ahead, Kyle. The irony that the school teacher is the most superstitious character in the story. Yes. The yeah. idea that the person who is really disdain has a lot of disdain for the country, the he sort of sees him as like country bumpkin ways of all the people around him. He's the one who sits there and gets spooked by trees and right. <laughs> gets scared by these ghost stories. Yeah, it, what's interesting is the description of how he of, of how he handled the ghost stories and the facts, the scientific facts that he walked around with. He writes, uh, Washington Irving writes that um, Ichabod Crane was in fact an odd mixture of small shrewdness and simple credulity. It says he would delight the ladies of the town with his anecdotes of witchcraft and of the direful omens and portentous sights and sounds in the air, which prevailed in the earlier times of Connecticut, and would frighten them woefully with speculations upon comets and shooting stars and Mm. with the alarming fact that the world did absolutely turn around and that they were half the time topsy-turvy right (laughs) so what what's interesting is that he held both of these things as equally as the other in in his in his belief system so he had all the cotton mathers tales of witchcraft and scientific fact all sort of roped together into one what's interesting to me is that the people were delighted kind of pleasantly diverted by the, the ghost stories, but they were horrified by the <laughs> scientific fact that he that he gave them that, yeah. and it's actually kind of the opposite for him. He's horrified in the end by the ghost stories, um, whereas they weren't. So it's something about their use of their own legends that that distinguishes them from him. If I remember right um, or understood right, as a teacher, he seemed to. Um look to be a protector somewhat of the poor kids hmm. in the classroom and uh, put a, a heavier load on those that were better off. And yet from the description given earlier about he saw the wealthy as a means to an end, um, you know, that's, he was using people in, in that in that regard, or looked to use them, I think. Right. Yeah. Well, and even his descriptions of how he helped out the poor kids, which, you know, Nobody is nobody is a pure character in this story to, to the point that even Keith said uh, the damsel isn't truly an innocent damsel and and Ichabod's not truly a benevolent teacher and even Brom Bones is not um, a truly innocent you know bystander to all these things nobody sort of gets out unsullied from the story 
the the best character, the most virtuous, is probably Katrina's father, mm. who who's amassed this great wealth and yet uh, holds it with total contentment and even generosity in hosting these big parties. He's he's the one who's most virtuous, I think, of the lot. And Brom Bones is probably the most loved by the town. Yeah. Um. I mean, he's he's a local legend. He's a hero. You know, all up and down the valley. Um. Which is kind of interesting. Okay, so here's a question. We kind of hit on this earlier, but is Ichabod Crane the hero of the story? Why or why not? I guess I ought to defend myself since I said he was the ghost. Um, <laughs> I, I would say he's not the, the hero of the story. Simply, I mean, for the first fact is that he he disappears at the end and no one really mourns him. <laughs> Normally, if you're going to have a hero disappear at the end of the story, it needs to be portrayed as a tragedy, and it's really not... Um, at the end of the story, I would also say uh, everything he did to contribute to the town was for his own selfish ends. Um, he's very much intent on taking from the Van Tassel family, who's Katrina and her father. And even his virtues at the end are sort of rejected by the people. So whenever he is uh, removed or whenever he removes himself, we don't know really which happens, he leaves and the town says, well, we don't really know what good reading these books that he taught us to read was really for us anyways. And so even the narrator is tipping his hat to the fact that Ichabod didn't really add anything of value by the time it was all said and done. Right. And heroes tend to have tight one-piece outfits. His clothes are really baggy. I yeah. just don't see yeah, that Yeah, we happen. didn't yeah. hear that he was wearing his underwear on the outside of his pants. <laughs> he, no skinny <laughs> so, jeans. No skinny jeans for <laughs> He Ichabod can't be Crane. a hero. Um this is a, kind of one of the other interesting, Kyle, I like what you said. I, th I think that uh, one of the weirder parts of the story is that in the end, the one with the fullest brain is scared out of town by a headless horseman. Um, so we've got this educator with all this stuff in his head who comes to town, maybe the biggest head in town, yeah. truly. Yeah, really a head on a stick kind of yeah, character. Yeah, and you get this idea that he does kind of have a big head, you know, with what he knows, and he, he gallivants around the countryside with the ladies, and they're all fawning over him. And in the end, he's scared out of town by a headless horseman, which is kind of interesting. It's one yeah. of the ironies, I think. And, there. and I think, too, the, the story really does play on the idea of what it means to be intelligent or what it means to have wisdom because his knowledge leads him to panic and to ultimate ruin. Mm -hmm. it, it, his knowledge of the ghost stories is not enough. Interestingly enough, when other people tell ghost stories in the story, they're not afraid they're, they have wonder, well, I or they think, have something else. I think that's a really interesting point, because I, I was sitting here thinking, as Ben was talking about the fact that he came to town viewing himself as superior, uh, but he was ultimately undone by the very thing that they that the town's community took mm. just as a matter of course and as part of the nature of their existence. Um, you know, that and a pumpkin to the head in the dark of night kind of <laughs> doesn't, doesn't help Does anything. Does <laughs> Yeah, that's good. Um, all right, so here's kind of where I was left at the end of the story. All right, I want us to, in, in just a minute, I would like to talk about the role that ghost stories play in a community and why maybe we don't have genuine ghost stories. We, we, we're still telling some of the legends, like the legend of Sleepy Hollow, for instance. We still tell a story like that or, um, or at least remember it. But, but here's kind of where I landed at the end of this of Washington Irving's tale. Brom Bones is a guy who makes use of the legends, while the legend makes use of Ichabod Crane. 
so to speak. So Brom Bones actually understands how to appropriate the um, the lore of his community. If if he is the one who put on the suit and scared him away, I mean that's a big that's a big if. It's a bit. It's an if. Um, but the other thing I walked away with is is this: the headless horseman. Okay, this long deceased Hessian cavalryman, and I talked about this a little bit ago, who died during the Revolutionary War, takes up the side of Brom Bones, a native of Sleepy Hollow, one of the Sleepy Hollow boys that we meet earlier in the story. He does this against this invader from the outside world. So the past actually comes to the aid of the present here, protecting Katrina from the greed and avariciousness, to, to use of a big word, of Ichabod Crane and tipping his hat also to Brom Bones, right? So the genius of famine who wants to possess the rich abundance of Katrina and her father's farm. Do you remember this expression? We talk, he described yeah. him as the genius of famine. Yeah. He wants to possess the abundance of Katrina and her father's farm and sees everything through the lens of profit and personal gratification, is scared out of town in the end by this headless horseman, this this ancient member of the community mm. Um, who kind of comes to the aid of the community in their time of need? Well, and the, there's a there's a core, or maybe an amplification of this point, and it gets back to this question of whether it, he's a producer's consumer. At the end of the day, he was ultimately undone in his encounter with the Hezus Horseman by his lack of, by his dependency on on leveraging the resources of others instead of having resources of his own. And I'm talking specifically about this hilarious horse. That he was given a ride. Ah, yeah. He yeah. had he didn't have his own horse, so he had to borrow this horse. And what he got was this mean old worn out plow horse that there's this hilarious description of. Yes. And the plow horse, the fact that he had to borrow someone else's horse, would ultimately led to his undoing in his encounter with the. That's right. With the with the pumpkin. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I, I think that this theme about uh, the the distinction to be made between people who provide for themselves and live an industrious life of production versus those who sort of bleed off the production of others to enrich themselves is a, is a theme that keeps coming up and I think is exemplified in the whole plow horse. So a guy like yeah. that ought to be run out of town on a rail, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think this is one of the things we see in the story. Here's the funny thing. One of the men of the town needed to step up and do it, but the minute he did, he made himself the enemy of all the ladies— who loved Ichabod Crane and were duped by his feigned intelligence, right? So one of the men had to step up and do it, except none of them could without paying the consequences. So who does? The headless horseman. The headless horseman, who had nothing more to lose. Right. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right? He had nothing more to lose. So finally someone does step up and run this consumer out of town. Well, and it's it's fascinating that the the final undoing in this scene is... Ichabod is riding this rebellious horse yeah. down this uh, really dark road, and he gets to the church, which, and, and he's trying to unravel as he's riding, how do I get away? And he gets to this bridge, and he remembers, I believe it was specifically Brom Bones saying something about the bridge, that, if, that once he got past the bridge, the headless horseman went away. And it's interesting because one of two things goes on there. Either, because basically Ichabod goes across the bridge thinking he's safe in the yard of the church, and the Headless Horseman still pursues him and ultimately overtakes him there. One of two things happens here. Either the Headless Horseman allows Brom Bones to leave when when he crosses the bridge because of something about Brom Bones, or Ichabod's 
un- misunderstanding of the traditions of the town leads to his undoing. If he had truly understood the Headless Horseman, he might have gotten away. He might have been allowed to leave. But whatever he misunderstood about the bridge and its significance and the church and its significance, he wanted to find safety. But ultimately, because he didn't, under- he didn't truly understand it and truly value it, it, it forsook him in his moment of need. Yeah, yeah. There's, so there's this question then at the end. Does Ichabod Crane get away? Because yeah. there's legend that he goes off to New York and becomes a judge. and Which uh, is the yeah. other reason why he's not the hero, because uh, a hero's, in most stories, what happens to the hero becomes the point of the end of the story and his effect. What's fascinating at the end of that story is we don't care what happens to Ichabod Crane. Right. Because we go, he's gone. That's the, that's the most important part. Right. It's immaterial. Yeah. You know. Which is kind of funny from you know to say about a ghost story, but it's it's <laughs> yeah. immaterial what happens to Ichabod Crane in the end. In fact, the point of the story, I would say, is the doubt. Right. Is is this idea that well, it might have been a ghost who did this? Yeah. Um, the the headless horseman ends up if you understand Ichabod Crane's character properly, the headless horseman ends up being the original Batman. He's <laughs> he's. He's the hero that we need, but not the hero that we want, so to speak. You know, he scares us. He's kind of everyone's boogeyman, and yet at the same time, he came to their aid. Yeah. You know, he, it's a, he's a funny thing. He dislikes the right people. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And precisely, I think to the point that was made earlier about the difference in virtues between a Brom Bones and a Ichabod Crane, specifically that Brom Bones is, mischief, is a mischief maker in all the sort of amiable ways but there are several instances of him being very helpful that are described in the story of when people needed him he and his boys would show up and help and it's interesting that whatever virtues we're looking for in the story were accomplished by a rider without a head i think there's a hilarious i think the rapier wit of washington irving is being made very clear there he's saying that you don't necessarily need a head to to have the kind of virtue that he's trying to advocate for in the story which I think is extremely offensive to a modern reader, <laughs> that that would yeah. be true. Yeah. That there might be something more than a head that you need, at the very least. Right. So, so let me ask this question. What, what does Washington Irving's use, if, if we're right and this is how the story needs to be taken, and I think that we're probably right about this, then what does Washington Irving's use of the Headless Horseman and, and the ghost story— this is really a ghost story about a ghost story— Hmm. Um, what, what does it tell us about the, the, um, the, the help that ghost stories give to a community or the use, the proper use of ghost stories for a community? Might I perhaps read just a short, a short paragraph from uh, the narrator describing the town of Sleepy Hollow? Mm-hmm. I mentioned this peaceful spot with all possible laud. For it is in such little retired Dutch valleys found here and there embosomed in the great state of New York that population, manners, and customs remain fixed, while the great torrent of migration and improvement, which is making such incessant changes in other parts of the, this restless country, sweeps by them unobserved. I think for Washington Irving, the Headless Horseman uh, is an embodiment of a defensive tradition. A tradition that prevents changes that would be unhealthy in a culture. Yeah, and so to your point, um, at the end of the book, at the end of the short story, there's a postscript 
where we meet the guy who tells this story. He's this poor man who's telling this story in kind of a group of other men, and um, and one of them, one of the men is incredulous. He kind of sits forward in his chair and he says, "I don't know about this." And so he poses the question: "What's the moral of the story then?" Right. And let me read to you a little bit about what the guy says. The storyteller, who was just putting a glass of wine to his lips as a refreshment after his toils, paused for a moment, looked at his inquirer with an air of infinite deference, and lowering the glass slowly to the table, is drawing this out. Like, we just want to know what the moral of the story is. We just tell right. us what it means. Observed that the story was intended most logically to prove... That there is no situation in life but has its advantages and pleasures, provided we will but take a joke as we find it. That, the second part, therefore he that runs races with goblin troopers is likely to have rough writing of it. <laughs> and then lastly, ergo, Kyle, this is interesting, to the point, to the point of the paragraph you read. Ergo, for a country schoolmaster to be refused the hand of a Dutch heiress is a certain step to high preferment in the state. She made the right choice. Right. She refused the hand, right, of the country schoolmaster. And therefore, yeah. that is a step in the right direction. Yeah. You know, I wonder, I mean, I've just thought of this as we we're sitting here talking about it, but I wonder, I mean, the ghost story is the vehicle. Hmm. It's the, it's kind of the carrier for the, for the rest of of what we're talking about here. But it's interesting to me that Ichabod is portrayed as having a large head and uh, all cerebral and superior. And the horseman, the, the boogeyman of the story, doesn't have a head. Yeah. He, he's missing his head. And, and, um, and he's closely associated with Brahm, who sort of embodies the virtues of the community, and, and at least in terms of what the community actually needs. Um, and so here at the end of the story, what happens is Ichabod, who's presented as this intellectual, superior, condescending, superior in his own mind. I mean, I don't mean he was superior to people, but he's viewed himself as superior, condescended, and sort of looked to prey on these bumpkins by acquiring their wealth for himself. He, who lacked the skills and the ability to produce anything other than you know, purely intellectual pursuits, is undone by someone who's the inverse, which is that per, the 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 horseman doesn't even have a head, right? Right. Yeah. The, the, yeah. You know, the horseman is is sort of part of the lore of the community, to use yeah. your words, Ben. And um, he undoes. He sort of rises up and undoes this uh, version of manliness that's disconnected from actually the actual needs so, and, and blessings. This of is community. one other point about the Hessian headless horseman that I think we need to point out. The Hessian headless horseman was a German soldier who came in to aid the Americans in their revolution against the British. Yeah. This is so the Hessian horseman is also an outsider. Okay? Mm. But mm. he was an outsider who gave his life for the sake of this community. Right. Yeah. As opposed to Ichabod Crane, who saw this community as a means to his own ends. Yeah. Right? So the Headless Horseman has a bone to pick Yeah, with this rapacious Ichabod Crane. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Well, and we've been giving all the credit to the Headless Horseman. I, I think this postscript does sort of caution us against too, sim- too simple of, a, of an understanding of the story. But 
Katrina does deserve some some laud for this because she's the first person, well, maybe the second. You would say Brom Bones is the first to sort of sniff Ichabod Crane out and go, I don't like this guy. Second person is Katrina. Yeah, she because gives the, the reason boot. the reason he leaves, at least we're led to understand, is that she probably told him no. And so it's interesting that the the community begins to refuse him, and when he does not take no for an answer, when he does not get out of Dodge fast enough, the Headless Horseman runs him out as fast as he can. You know, I th- I think maybe we're also just being a bit hard on Katrina, because I think we're judging her by modern standards. We would call this presentism hmm. in her era. Now, maybe maybe the you know the idea of her being coquettish, but she was only slightly coquettish, and maybe for a point. Because in her time and place, she had to be sure what kind of guy it was that she was going to choose and select to be the heir of her father's fortune. She Mm -hmm. had a lot riding on her choice, and she needed to kind of ferret out what kind of guy is Ichabod Crane. And maybe, maybe even just enough to tweak Brom Bones into rising to the occasion. Maybe so. Who she always had her eyes on to begin with, perhaps. So I, I... I am sympathetic to Katrina in her own historical context more, I think, than I am if I read her through strictly 21st century lens. To your point about, I think Katrina deserves some credit here. She, she ultimately makes the right choice right. In, in, the, in the context of the story. She I mean, eventually she, figures out what's going on with Ichabod. I, I think whether it was the Headless Horseman or Brom Bones, she, you know, her choice was somewhat made for her. Ichabod Crane disappears True. at the end. <laughs> um, but... But right, she ends up with the right lad. Yeah. Um, well, and she, yeah, and and refuses him out, and and the headless horseman enforces the choice. Certainly, at that point. Okay, you think, go ahead. You think um, Ichabod's horse might be a hero as well, knowing what kind of man he was. He just decided not to run any faster, <laughs> and well, give him what was due. Well, it could be that you know horses are maybe good judges of character. Yeah, there you go. And he knew what kind of guy. Yeah. Well, and it's another honest. example of the fact that he didn't understand where he was or the people that were there because. He didn't understand how to handle the horse. Nobody else seemed to have problems with their horses, and even the guy who owned it, it was a good horse for him. Yeah, a saddle falls but Ichabod, off. You know, I mean, the Ichabod Crane saddle How on falls earth off. does that happen yeah. when one is on top of the saddle? Anyways. Yeah. Well, so the, the last line of the story, I'm going to get the last line of this story because it's, it's a good one, and it, and it really drives this whole idea of doubt home. The storyteller replies to the guy who's quizzing him about the, the point of the story. The guy who's quizzing him about the moral of the story, you know, at length he observes that all this was very well, but still he thought the story a little on the extravagant. There were one or two points on which he had his doubts. Faith, sir, replied the storyteller. As to that matter, I don't believe one half of it myself. Yeah, you're sort of left going like, wait a minute. <laughs> and, and you're also sort of left going, it's which, a prank on the reader. Which half should we believe? Hmm. Which of what part of the story is true? Should we believe the half that the ghost is real or that Brom Bones was a character who ran him out of town? So even in the end, we identify with every person asking questions and even telling the story, what is to be believed here? So maybe one of the interesting lessons for our current moment that we could take from this is that credentialed experts don't always have the best interest of the community at heart. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's valid. And I th- I think I would also say we are not nearly haunted enough by our own history. Hmm. Um, not only do we not know the, the natural world around us the way that our ancestors did, 
but we're not nearly familiar enough with our own history to have them ride to our aid in our time of need. Hmm. Um, and, and, and by that, I mean, if we knew our history better, then we might not be as prone to the um, vicissitudes of time, the, the swift changing uh, course of history that, that, we're, that we're currently on. Yeah. So I, I think maybe there's something to that also in the story. Yeah. I would almost say, too, to, to that same vein of thought, I think you asked at the beginning, what kind of story is this? And I said it was a ghost story. And I say that partially because I think a good ghost story is almost always somewhat in the realm of a parable. And here's why. Because ghost stories traditionally work as uh, cautionary tales. It's like, hey, we we don't go into dark houses. We don't go into the woods at night because here's why. We don't do this, that, or the other because the ghost will get you kind of thing. And I think it's it pushes that point home in this story because at the end of the story, the new one of the new ghosts of Sleepy Hollow actually seems to be Ichabod Crane. At the end, there's this description of there's this sound of the, uh, sadly sung psalm tunes, which is what Ichabod did uh, when he was wandering around. And so he becomes the new cautionary tale in the story. And so I think we need to be a culture who knows how to tell cautionary tales to our children, cautionary tales to ourselves, that there actually might be choices that we can make that would be disastrous. And we need to hold on to those stories to say there are there are dangerous paths to go in the woods at night. Don't go there. Don't right. do that. Right. Well, any other closing thoughts before we wrap this first episode of The Book Nook up? Mm. Any other thoughts on the story? I think there's a wealth of knowledge to be gained from reading a story outside of one's own time. Yeah. I, I think it was really important that we read a story from like very early American history first because it challenges us in a way that a story written maybe in our present time wouldn't. Yeah. Um, Lewis wrote the introduction to uh, a translation of Athanasius on the Incarnation, which is kind of a weird thing. But the introduction to the book is what C.S. Lewis wrote that's worth, really worth, well, they're both worth reading, but C.S. Lewis' introduction peculiarly has something worth, um, or has some bearing upon our conversation. He challenges people to read the old books. And one of the reasons he gives is that they're not likely to go wrong in the same direction as we are. It isn't that they're perfect, but they're just not going wrong in the same direction. And so there's a healthy corrective to knowing and to reading these old stories. Um, yeah, so anyway, I hope this was an enjoyable journey uh, down Washington Irving memory lane, and uh, may this story happily haunt your October. October.